0: Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live first published uh, work in something called Cracked Magazine in 1985 and his first comic book series, Lloyd Llewellyn, which ran for seven issues. He created in 1989 the uh, comic book series Eight Ball, where much of his uh, initial work appeared, including... uh, Like a Velvet Glove Cast in Iron, Ghost World, David Boring, and uh, he shifted from uh, black and white drawings into color for the last two issues of that. He's also done a graphic novel called Wilson that some people like and some people hate. And he has a new book out called Mr. Wonderful, a middle-aged romance, uh, which was serialized in the New York Times Magazine too. His Ghost World was adapted uh, and uh, made into a film earning an Academy Award nomination for best adapted screenplay. Uh, And he also uh, collaborated in Art School Confidential, starring John Malkovich and Jim Broadbent. And he was the first cartoonist, drawer, to be selected for Esquire's annual fiction issue. He lives in Oakland. His new book again, Mr. Wonderful. Will you please welcome Daniel Klaus to West Coast Live. (laughs) How do you do? (laughs)
1: You
0: know, I once... uh, interviewed Charles Schultz, who was convinced that he was, uh, he wasn't convinced, but he believed that what he did was underappreciated as art, that he put as much thought into it, he drew as carefully imagined characters and scenes as, as carefully as any artist did. And I imagine that the whole world of graphic novels and, and the way they're viewed has changed substantially since
1: he sort of first had that reaction to the idea of a, of a comic book well i think it depended on the day that you spoke to mr schultz cuz he would uh he would waver in between saying that and then if if someone were to uh to over compliment him he would he would often say oh what i'm doing is just you know selling insurance with little cartoon characters this <laughs> couldn't be less important which is that, that tends to, he he has sort of the uh the, the role model personality for all cartoonists, which is wavering between uh, self-hatred and, and <laughs> feelings of worthlessness and then delusions of grandeur, <laughs> all, all within minutes of each other. He, the, uh, when you wake up in the morning, is your first
0: impulse to, to grab a, a pen and a piece of paper? God, no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, I uh, my first impulse is to try to wake up and uh, you know get get a few thoughts together. I don't I don't really usually start actually drawing till later in the day. I find my hands are kind of shaky from from drinking coffee in the morning, so it's it's uh, I I do most of my writing and thinking in the morning. Yeah. And you you think do you, do you walk
0: do you uh, how do you how do you process that information and and uh, uh, before you go back? I mean, say you're in the middle of a project. Uh, is it is it fully thought out you realized you know where you want to go and it's a matter of sort of executing the design
1: i try to uh before i actually commit anything to paper i try to have it very clear in my mind at least not not necessarily the mechanics of the plot or the actual dialogue or anything like that but i try to know the characters as well as i could ever know them and to kind of know the movements of the story and then i after that, it, it, when I'm actually drawing, it's much more improvisational. I have sort of parameters of where where the story is going to go any given day, but I try to I try to keep it loose and not plan ahead too far. It, it can it, it, it's mostly just that it's it's deadly to sit and draw things that you've already thought out and drawn in your head.
0: There's an interesting technique that you use in Mister Wonderful, where you where you have. Somebody speaking, but we don't necessarily see the words in the speech balloon, but we see a square box of their thoughts blocking out it. So we have an opportunity to read into the character's mind of what's being felt, but not hear what's being said.
1: Yeah, that, you know, that's, I try to never do things that are experimental for their own sake, but every once in a while I blunder onto something that's actually um, useful to a story. And in this case, I was, I wanted to tell the story through. The guy's tortured uh, inner life, you know it's it's through his own um, filter on the world and and he's um, he's so haunted by his own kind of um, overwhelming self-censorship that he he doesn't allow you to eat to first of all, he doesn't allow you to see what anybody else is fully saying his his thoughts always kind of eclipse the uh, the words of the other characters, but uh, towards the end of the story, his thoughts even eclipse his own words, and it's as though he's uh, his, the the dialogue that's going on in his brain is is quite unrelated to to what he's saying and what he's doing and what he's experiencing. And I thought it was uh, I thought it was kind of a neat way to represent that. What about the
0: the color palette i mean you use kind of a sepia tone to represent uh, the past sepia reddish orangey uh, sepia tone but some of the other colors are you know kind of a a pastel
1: blues and and yellows and browns you know those are all just gimmicks to <laughs> to uh, mm-hmm. tricks to to make it clear you know i'm i'm not interested in Having a reader look through one of my books, especially someone who's who's you know a novice comic reader, that's that's my ideal reader for these things. I don't want to uh, to have them um, confused, so I'm trying to do all these little tricks to to make it clear that it's a flashback or that it's a fantasy. You know, I'm trying to do sort of complex things in a in a clear way. I hope. Do you do you think that the experienced comic book reader reader then is too jaded and and, and on to a, an artist's tricks? That can happen. You know, it, it, it can be that they're, they get um, hungry for, for weird experimentation and things like that, that if you, if you provide a straightforward story, it sort of seems like you're, you're not, you know, pushing, pushing the curve of the art form forward. You know, not, not something I ever intended to do, so.
0: I suppose that's also something that that happens in in other art forms and, and say in fiction where uh, people start you know kind of ratcheting up the plot, the plot devices the horror the the gimmicks and so forth just to try to keep a reader's attention and the idea that you could have something subtle and internal and and
1: uh, more reflective then becomes something offputting it's uh you know it's certainly hard to uh sell it as a high concept you know it's <laughs> i uh when I first did this story Mr. Wonderful for for the New York Times magazine I had to write a little blurb that they were going to send to the editors in chief you know that was sort of the uh, the capsule version of this and I tried to write it in uh, as something that sounded really appealing and it you know it was something like the you know the I will follow the, the dead deadening minutia of this date for every second of its of its you know night that, that it takes place and it, it, you know it, it sounded like the the least commercial project you could ever imagine so it was, it was to their credit that they actually published the thing
0: well maybe then they were also able to think well we're not really
1: running comics in the new york times well the the section that it ran in was called funny pages and it was this sort of ill-conceived idea where they were going to do their version of sunday comics which of course they never actually did but they picked only cartoonists like myself who are possibly funny, but not, that's not the, the main intent of the strip, and I think it was really uh, confusing to the reader. It was like, is this actually supposed to be funny, or is it, is it uh, you know, is, are they making fun of us by doing a strip that's not funny? I mean, some of them were actually quite bleak, you know. It's like, if Samuel Beckett is funny, which of course he is, you know, it's, it's, it's a different type of humor. Or you want to be oblique, too, I don't know. The, the, uh, th-
0: there's also this format of the of the book, which is more, I, I guess, more horizontal than vertical, and and it allows things to do sort of double spreads, for instance, where there's a great surprise where you're turning the page and suddenly you see an intense close-up of wide-open eyeballs, an eyeball on each
1: page, bracketed, bridged by a pair of glasses. Ye gods, um, <laughs> you know, working. Uh, in the New York Times, I had 20 weeks to tell what was a fairly substantial story. And, and so every square inch was valuable. Every word balloon I could squeeze in, I was squeezing in. You know, I had very little space to try to tell this story. And then in, uh, in book form, all of a sudden, I could have made this book 500 pages if I wanted. I had all the space in the world. And so it was an opportunity to open things up. And so I, instead of using the pages to put in more tiny little panels, which is, that's certainly my inclination usually, um, I tried to sort of create this cinema scope vision of, of uh, the world so that you felt situated in a, in a real place. You say in the, uh, in, the in
0: sort of the, the frontispiece of, of the book that uh, it's been modified and expanded for this edition. The swearing has been left in pound sign, at sign, dollar sign, asterisk form
1: for aesthetic reasons. When I was, uh, when I first began the strip, I, uh, in, the, in the first uh, few episodes, I had the character said, use the epithet Jesus. And I thought, I actually the first time I wrote it, I thought they're never gonna let me use this. And it went through all the editors, was in print, on the web, everything. So I thought, well, that's that's going to be his little tick. That's what that's his one release, is that he can say Jesus. And after about episode five, I got a call from the editor, and she said, "Oh, it's so funny. We got a uh, we got an email from a woman in Arkansas who really objects to your use of the word Jesus, and uh, and she's going to cancel her subscription." And my first thought was, "Oh, that's great. That's what we need. We need controversy. You know, can you run this on the letters page and people? You know, this will." Um, and she said, no, but um, but you're not going to be able to use the word Jesus anymore. And I thought, oh, so the lady from Arkansas gets to you know, I thought, like, can I write a letter to David Brooks and ask him to wear <laughs> a funny hat in his, when he's on, you know, the news hour or something, you know, it's, I guess, you know, the reader is always right. So, so, uh, so I wound up having to write around this word, which at that point in the story is sort of when the, the tension is increasing. That's kind of when the date actually begins in the story, and and um, and so I found myself struggling to write around even a word as mild as Jesus, and and uh, and in the long run, it actually wound up helping the writing because he, it made the character so constricted and so unable to to verbalize. His anxiety—that it's—it it was just exploding in his in these interior monologues I was writing, and so when I went back to do the book version, where of course I could have him swear like a sailor if I wanted, I I wound up leaving it in this in those sort of archaic, uh, you know, computer key signs.
0: But having uh, characters who verbalize a lot is, is, uh, has been. Something that you do in, in in your books. I mean, they're they're voluble, they're opinionated, they can be vulgar, they can be chic and and elegant, and and uh, so this was really an interesting exercise in constraint in a way.
1: Well, it's certainly a different voice that that a character uses in his own head than that he would use in speaking to others. I mean, my previous book Wilson was about a character who. Um, Who is the opposite of this guy? He's a complete um, uh, ego id creature. He's he's you know just saying whatever pops into his head, and he, most of the strips are just him talking to himself. It's you know walking around the streets of Oakland, just commenting, saying his thoughts out loud, which is something that somehow you can get away with in a comic character. If you were to have a movie of a character just walking around talking to himself, it would you just think oh he's crazy, but somehow in a comic it's. It's, it's one of those things that's accepted in the language of comics. And so he's sort of, he's the, he's the polar opposite of this character, Marshall, who is, who is you know, a, a super ego. He's not an id at all. He's censoring every word and every thought. You're listening to
0: this special audio highlight from West Coast Live on this podcast. For more information about the show and to sign up for our mailing list, wcl.org. There's a, a, a fellow who shows up in, in many of your books in sort of thanks and credits. His name is John
1: Kuramoto. How, how does he fit in with your, your work and your, and your voices? Wow, I'm very happy to talk about John Kuramoto. He, uh, he was the guy I met at a comic convention maybe 15 years ago who said, I, I can do all this stuff on computers, and if you ever want to color your comics on computers and do that kind of stuff, I'd love to help you. And The minute he walked away, I said, "Forget it. I'm never, never going to do anything on a computer. That is the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard." And then, you know, cut to five years later. Where's that number for John Kuramoto? I've got it. You know, Um, you know, all printing shifted over to computers, and the only way to get true and natural printing colors is to give the printer the actual computer mixtures. You know, that's there's no other way to do it. So, he is the guy who who taught me all the Stuff about how to color comics on a computer, and he's, he, is, um, he is' the most um, picky human being I've ever met. He's, he will um, when I have him when I'm done with coloring all my books, I send them to him, and he goes over every little eyeball, and he'll find when like the blue is five percent darker in one eyeball than in the other, something that no human eye could ever see. I mean, he's seeing the book literally blown up. A thousand times, and I, actually, one time I very tiny wrote a little note that said "Hi, John K." in some bushes, and he found it. And I mean, it was so <laughs> tiny you would never see it. It was like a dot on the printed page. You regularly stick in little kind of secret messages. That I think
0: that's the only one. Yeah. The, only, <laughs> uh, the only one. I'll admit to anyway. Ghost World uh, made into a movie, which suggests also the idea that I mean, comic books. Uh, you know, in a way represent, uh, you know, a wonderful uh, tableau, a, a storyboard uh, way for, for movies uh, to get produced. i was curious in, in the transition of the translation of Ghost World, which is in, it's not, I don't know, di- duotone? Is that what you would call this? The yeah. sort of the blue and the black and, and the white, or the sort of the teal um, and the black and the white? Yes, duotone. Uh,
1: and then th- this also involved color separations in the same way? This was done the old-fashioned way. This um, this is the kind of thing no one knows how to do anymore. Where it was using something called ruby lith film, which was something that um, people who used to work on old newspapers would know about. Which was this color film that you actually cut out in all the shapes of um, you know the the tones that you want to have on the page, and then it's it's a printing process. And um, I guarantee there's not a Kid under you know forty who knows anything about that stuff.
0: The uh, you went from uh, black and white into to color at, at some point. Uh, the the tradition of the graphic novel. Uh, there's the manga, you know, tradition in in Japan. There are pornographic uh, editions where people can do strange things on paper that can't be done in real life. That uh, <laughs> that that have arcane collectors. Uh, you know, uh, there are uh, men who go around uh, wearing a heights in purple and oranges uh, you know, there are that, that uh, it seems to be sort of a, a wonderful uh, tabula rasa that you can just sort of your imagination can run wild in these in these forms
1: yeah well it although it often runs in the same directions you know you the when, when I first started doing this when I was you know 18 or 19 years old back in the late 70s the the market was utterly dominated by superheroes, and and I was uh, I was doing these comics that were not about superheroes, just about normal people. And I was always ghettoized to the back of the comic store. You know, back then the only place that sold my kind of comics or um, like underground comics, like Robert Crumb and people like that, was it would be in a in a typical comic book store that the front of the store was all superheroes that's all it was and then in the back there would be a little cardboard box that said adult and i would be in there with with the uh, you know the elf pornography and all, just all this you know and it's not like i was going to like meet you know ha- have a new girlfriend and tell tell her parents like yes you can find my work in the adult <laughs> box in the back of the filthy comic book store that you have to take 3 buses to get to on the north side of chicago you know <laughs> it was uh it, it was not a hospitable world and 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 yet now to this day superheroes are still you know the the we at least have a little shelf in the back of the comic store now but um you know superheroes have taken over the entire world the, all the big movies that's that's all superhero stuff but you've had uh, two major films come out Ghost World and Art School
0: Confidential um, which seemed to be in in many ways a natural outgrowth
1: of of this uh of the of the form of of, of the comic i don't know if I'd call those major films, but uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever met a single person who's heard of either one <laughs> just in in you know in the academy general. has you yes, yes, that's true um but uh yeah you know to some degree the they're you know they're they're stories told in a visual way it's certainly a it's good fodder for, for motion pictures. There's something about the, the Hollywood process where they need something to be published before they're interested in it. Whenever I've pitched them an idea on a, on a film that's just a, an idea off the top of my head, they're never interested. They're just, what is this? We don't understand. And the minute it's in a book, they're, like, oh yes, we'd like to buy the rights to this. It's been that way since the, since the 30s. It's know. some kind of external validation yeah. Something. I mean, they just, it's just they're very comfortable working in that way. So I always, whenever anybody wants to break into the movies, I say just self-publish your own little comic book and send it out to them, and they'll they'll say, oh yes, we'd like to option this.
0: <laughs> you have one of your characters say, "Don't ever trust a writer. Don't ever trust people who make movies." I do. Yeah, I don't remember that. <laughs> it was in. Uh, let's see here. It was in. Uh... Was it in caricature? It was one of the stories in caricature. The yeah. 24-year-old beautiful girl who is living off of a small inheritance.
1: Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't read my own comics. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what about the, the little writing? I mean, there's kind of this font that a lot of comic books have that people read. And yet in some of the, uh, the eight-ball stories, it's a very uh, almost a, kind of a very curiously uh, um, baroque kind
1: of look to it. The kind of type, typewriter?
0: No, Fine. it's it's even it's it's kind of like typewriter on um, quiludes or something. I'm, I'm trying, <laughs> it's a very uh, it's a very loosey here. Like this, look here. Here you go. Here an eight ball, just another day. That that kind of uh, almost.
1: This, hand- this makes for great radio. Oh, no, always. it
0: does.
1: <laughs> <laughs> some some of the things we can't show on the radio, by the way. It's... Most of the things, yes. Yeah. Um, that's all just you know hand lettering. i I don't use any kind of fonts, although if I were to make it into a font, colude is a good name. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the uh, The idea of writing about ordinary life and showing it in in, uh, in comics, sort of moving it away from the world of superheroes, I mean it's kind of seems to have liberated the the art form in many ways, but it's also been sort of the basis of it. I mean the all sort of History of cartooning from Little Nemo and the Cats and Jammer kids up through uh, uh, you know Snoopy I mean yeah, I mean you have normal thinking, talking sentient dogs, for instance. Sure, that's I mean, not a superhero.
1: No, no I mean it's certainly I think you know my my little crowd of, of you know graphic novelists or whatever we're called um, certainly look back to to the early. Comic strip guys for inspiration more than we do to, uh, you know, Jack Kirby or the Marvel cartoonist of the '60s. You know, we're looking to uh, to you know George Harriman, Crazy Cat, and things like that, and as well as uh, the early Mad Magazine, Harvey Kurtzman, people like that, and then certainly the I would say my primary influence and and probably all of my friends would be um, Robert Crumb.
0: There's also a big trend in historical graphic novels, uh, you know, that include things such as was it Young Gen, the story of the Hiroshima, to uh, graphic histories of of World War II and and other um, depictions, where it seems to be a form. I mean, I guess I suppose even Tintin, you know, is these the the sort of the uh, moving away
1: from the strict.
0: Uh, it's just I guess a different art form.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly. You know, the, the Europeans always had a much broader. Um, range of subject matter you know that's in the 70s that was who i was looking to as a as a teenager to see that you could in fact do things other than superheroes you know there there really was a sense for a while there that there was it wasn't worth trying anything else because the fact that there were only superhero comics made it seem as though others had tried and failed and that was really all you could do and so it was it was gratifying to finally see some of these french comics which you know, we're, we're not so far afield from superheroes. It was like, you know, naked robots and things like that. But, but it was still enough, enough of, a, of a change to, to make us think that maybe there were things that could be done. Daniel
0: Clowes, thank you very much. His new book is called Mr. Wonderful, uh, no longer in the cardboard box at the back of the store, in the front, in the display windows, and in the New York Times. Thank you very much for being on West Coast Live. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Daniel Clowes. You can find a link to him on our website at wcl.org. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.